Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com Ich verstehe nicht. This podcast gave me a little bit of je ne sais quoi. Some ratatouille and the VD. If not for Holy Madness, I would go to bed on time. With your co-hosts, me, and Nir Simcha. We're having a Tubishvat party. Tubishvat? Tubishvat is a birthday that comes on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat. Why don't you join us? Yeah, it's a birthday party for trees. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, a birthday party for trees! Okay, maybe not a birthday party per se, but it's something else completely. In the Mishnah, Tubishvat is actually called a New Year for Trees. A New Year for Trees? Yes, a New Year for Trees. So they all have to go to synagogue and spend $150 on tickets and... And champagne and waiting for the ball to drop from the great elm. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever. Okay, what is a new year for trees? Well, okay, hold on. Back up, because we should emphasize the weirdness of this. How many new years are there? Okay, so fair question. So the Mishnah that I'm referring to in Masechet Rosh Hashanah actually says that there are four new years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are the four new years? Well, everybody knows about... The first one. Which, of course, is Rosh Chodesh Nisan. No. <laughs> but okay. Why don't we just read the Mishnah? Okay, we'll read the Mishnah. Arba'a Rosh Hashanim Hem. Bechad Benisan Rosh Hashanah Lamalachim Ragalim. So the Mishnah says there are four different New Years. The first one is the first of the month of Nisan. That is in the spring. And that is a Rosh Hashanah. That is a New Year for kings and for festivals. Or literally feet. Yes. So the second one is the first of Elul, which is generally around September time. And that is the new year in terms of the tithing of animals. Although two rabbis argue and say this takes place on the first of Tishrei. So Elul, the first of Elul is one month before Rosh Hashanah, and the two rabbis who argue with this opinion say that it's Rosh Hashanah itself. Which would make only three and not four. But to continue, Be'echad B'Tishrei, on the first of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, L'Shanim, U'Lashmitin, V'Layovlot. First of Tishrei is the new year for years, for Shemitah cycles, uh, it's the land sabbatical. Leovlot is jubilees. The seven-year cycle. The jubilees, the 50-year cycle. And then it continues. Linitia for plants, liyakot, and for vegetables. In terms, again, of tithing for the two of them. And then... Linitia might be for saplings, you could say. Yes, that would be a much better word for it. Thank you. Uh, and those of you listening, hold that thought. Bechad bishvat... On the first of Shvat, Rosh Hashanah la'ilan kedivrei beit shamai. Beit hilal amarim b'chamisha sarbo. 
So the last one, which is the Rosh Hashanah for trees, the New Year for trees, is an argument between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Uh, one says it's the first of Shvat, and the other one says it's the 15th. Wait, a New Year on the 15th day of a month? That's the first strange thing that, at least in terms of this, uh, in terms of the ruling. And secondly, well, then again, what is a new year for trees at all? Especially since, as you pointed out, there is a totally separate new year for saplings. Oh. So what are we talking about? So when you plant a fruit tree in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel... You have to wait a while until you can actually eat its fruit. And that's not just because it takes a while for a fruit tree to actually produce edible fruit. This is the law. The two are closely related, actually. So the first three years that a tree is in the ground, you are not allowed to harvest its fruit at all. Yes. And as, that, a, as an aside, just be, to show how this has modern-day implications, if you start a winery... Here in Israel, mm -hmm. the first three years that you're growing grapes on your vines, you can't use them. Right. Anyone starting a kosher winery in Israel has a massive capital drain yeah. because there's nothing they can do for three years. Mm -hmm. And the same would be true for anybody starting an orchard, for example. Right. But we're famous these days for wine, wine. so I figured that was a great example. Yep. But but as you were saying. Yes. So for the first three years, you aren't allowed to harvest the fruit. Then the fourth year, you're allowed to harvest the fruit, but it needs to be eaten in Yerushalayim, in mm -hmm. Jerusalem, as part of your Aliyah to Regal, your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Right. And by the way, those pilgrimages were the holidays that we even mentioned when we said that the first of Nisan would be considered a new year for that cycle of the three pilgrimages. Right. That food, of course, also has to be eaten by tahara. It has to be eaten in purity. Ritual purity, yes. Ritual purity. And uh, these obligations and possibilities fall away completely when there isn't a temple. Right. Except that you aren't allowed to eat that fruit because you can't actually bring it up and eat it in proximity to the temple, there being no temple. And so they basically are just left there. Right to fall off and rot yes so then finally the fifth season of fruit production for this tree you can actually eat the fruit right not all of it of course because you have to take truma, truma maser, maser, right, right all the tithing and uh applicable gifts well they're kind of obligatory but to the kohanim to the priests etc etc the Kohanim and the Levim, who, of course, can't actually eat this stuff today because there's no temple. Right. And we're all ritually impure. Also true. But you still have to separate it, and it goes essentially... Well, generally what we do, most people do, is they redeem it with money. Well, you can only do that for your mice or shene. Right. But at least one of these things. They'll right. redeem with money. They'll put the money aside so that when there's a temple... Etc. Etc. And for the other things, again, they're separated and they're left for nothing to rot, basically. Right. Though, if you have a coin or a levy who lives near you and they have animals, you can you give can them. give it to them and they can feed their animals with it. Yeah. Right. So when you're doing dealing with things like grain, yeah, 
um, barley, oats, etc. That actually comes in handy. Yeah. Should you have a Kohen that lives near you? Or if you have a goat that'll eat anything, that's fine too. Yeah. So at any rate, that's what this new year is about. This would be the change from fourth season to fifth season. Well, hold on. Because we do have In terms of the fruits. Yes. So when we're counting the first three years for the tree, we aren't counting according to Tubishvat, according to this new year of the trees. We're actually counting according to the new year of the saplings, which is what we popularly call Rosh Hashanah today, the first day of Tishrei. So you have this counting basically the age of the wood, and then after you count the third year for the wood, before you can actually get into the fruit, you have a few months delay till you get to this new year for the trees, till you get to right. Tubishvat. And any fruit that's bloomed before, that's any fruit that's come into fruition before Tubishvat uh, cannot actually be consumed. Because, because it's from the previous season. Right, it's... So those are the boring technical things. As we alluded to already, there is no temple today. And so the majority of these uh, tithes and gifts and things like that we can't really do. This holiday doesn't have, if you could even call it a holiday, it's really a legal uh, thing. It's just a date where we move classifications of fruit trees. But it doesn't have the same... an accounting deadline. Basically. And it doesn't have the same flavor or import as it would if the temple was standing. Oddly enough, it kind of got re... Reinvented, you could say. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. Reinvented in the modern day where people have taken certain things that are almost even tangentially related to this mm-hmm. and they've turned this into a, a holiday of some minor holiday but a holiday of sorts so there's the tubishvat seder so that's that's the earliest way that it's been reinvented mm-hmm. I, I would say the tubishvat seder comes from there are different debates about this but one way or another from the different kabbalists basically yeah so there's this kabbalistical thing where we take different, and, and very similar to the Seder that you all know about from Pesach, from Passover, there's this entire reading, much shorter, this entire <laughs> reading, and these different symbolic things that we do, and the different blessings that you make, Actually, and it's we, this whole production. We call it a Seder, like the Seder on Pesach, Passover, but it actually in practice, looks much more like something that we do on Rosh Hashanah. Yes. Which is, incidentally, the Rosh Hashanah for the saplings. Right. So all those symbolic foods and the symbolic prayers that are based on these, like, word puns and things like that, that's a a big part of that. And that's something people do today. We eat different fruits and use the names for puns and enjoy the fruit and try to come to some greater appreciation for the trees around us. Right. Right. Another thing that the Hasidic world, the Olam Hasidim, does is there's a big thing to pray for a good esrog. That's ethrog. Citron. 
Uh, Does anybody know what a citron is in English? Well, you'd be surprised. Like if you walk into Whole Foods, can you go and buy yourself a citron? Is there a place you can buy citrons in America? In America, no. But they're actually used in cosmetics. They're not only grown for us at all. There, there are huge orchards of this stuff in, in the Mediterranean Basin in Greece, for example, in Italy. Hmm. And it's used in, for industrial purposes, for flavorings, for, for other things. Hmm. But what I was going to say is there's actually a pretty famous hedge fund called Citron Research. Really? <laughs> yeah. They're one of the short style hedge funds. He, he comes out and trashes companies and tries to drive their stock price down and stuff like that. I always thought it was funny. Um, but apparently people somewhat know what these things are. And also don't forget, at least in America, especially in coastal America, most mm-hmm. people know what these things are because they see them. You know, if you're walking through Manhattan and you look moderately Jewish, you're going to get accosted by some bearded guy saying, did you shake the lulav today? And that yellow thing he's holding, that's an S-rope. Oh, okay. That's your kind of coastal America. Well, yeah, but it, it's like that in most of the, I'd say, larger cities. Uh, and look, Chabad is everywhere. In colleges, in in random towns at this point. Look, the, the two givens in the universe is that wherever you go, you will find Coca-Cola and you will find Chabad. They're there. The last thing that Tu is, uh has become and the modern adaption of it is alluded to in the clip that we played earlier, mm-hmm. which is actually from the uh, Jewish-slash-Israeli adaption of Sesame Street. Shalom, Sesame! Exactly. And that is, they have turned it into this kind of ecological holiday, environmental holiday, which we, we talk about the trees and the fruits, and we give thanks for the beautiful world that's around us, and plant trees, that's a big deal, this is the Tuba Shafat that I grew up with. Jewish right. Arbor Day, let's appreciate trees and plant trees. Exactly. And especially in the land of Israel. Yeah. So that's, I mean, look, the, the Tuba Shafat I grew up with, just for the contrast, was we would just eat a, you know, a fruit. They give out these little bags of like apricots and caribs and who knows what. And no, really, it was like <laughs> these scary. weird stuff, you know. <laughs> And you would just make a, a coconuts we had one year, I remember, because I had never seen one before. Oh, wow. I was like seven years old. Wow. I grew up in New York. Who's eating coconuts? Um, I had never seen a fresh date until I was 23 years old and I moved here. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I doubt I did either. And I certainly wouldn't have eaten one had I seen it. The same is probably true for figs, too. That is 100%. I never saw a fig until after I moved here, like a year and change in. My wife came home with them. She's like, these are figs. I'm like, those are figs? <laughs> really? <laughs> but anyway, that was the Tubish that I grew up with. And it seems strange that of all the minor holidays, this is not the only minor holiday we have. I mean, for crying out loud, we just listed four. Granted, one, we do have something about, but you find that in the Bible. Rosh Hashanah as a holiday and the first of Tishrei is biblical. But there, there are three others. The day of the shofars. Right. right. But there are three others. Yes. And we don't mark any of them. Well, nominally, Rosh Chodesh Nisan is marked. But not for this reason. Not for this reason. That's true. And we certainly don't mark uh, the first of Elul. Well, we do, but again, not 
You're saying because it's Rosh Chodesh, but we're not marking it as this minor holiday. At all, not even right. Holiday. So why this one is a really good question. Why does this speak to us? How did That this... it's part of our lives. It's one thing to just kind of shrug and say it's symbolic and, you know, there's trees and that's nice. And, and it is. But I think there's something a bit deeper in terms of trees mm. because we relate to trees in a very deep way. There's something about the forest that awakens people's minds hmm. in ways that, say, the desert or the hills or, or other such, you know, nice nature kind of views just don't. We use trees in a lot of metaphorical ways. Your lineage is charted on family trees. A family tree. We map information on trees, such as species like relationships, language development, the flow of a computer program. An algorithm, right. We commonly speak of finding our roots, of bending with the wind, of turning over a new leaf. Now you're saying lots of important metaphors for what we do are related to trees. Yeah. We all long to see and enjoy the fruits of our labors. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Breslov Hasidim, the Hasidic tradition of Breslov, has this tradition to go to a forest. Davka, uh, uh, specifically, a forest, hmm. to do something called his bodedut. Ah, that's why it didn't work for me. Because you weren't doing it in a forest. I wasn't doing it in a forest. I was going out to a rocky cliff. That would explain it. Hmm. bodedut is a kind of <laughs> meditation. It's this form of really getting in touch with yourself in a prayerful way. And, and it has to be a forest. And most people on the planet, I would suggest have a custom to do the same, even if it's not a tradition. Trees evoke a sense of timelessness. They were there before us, and they will live long after. They bear fruit year after year, dancing in the wind, participating in the cycle of life and death, ends and beginnings. We all relate to the fall. It seems that they die, and mm. then the spring, they come back to life. They're reborn. Right. And the colors and mm. the... Somebody standing amongst the trees in a forest, I would suggest, is filled with a certain sense of his mortality, of his finiteness, while being towered over by these trees. So there's mm. something about trees, I'd like to suggest, that really speaks to us. And You're saying that before we, we say anything scientific about trees, about how they Oxygen, actually keep the planet, yeah. <laughs> retaining soil and... Right. Just in a purely, you know, whether you want to say we evolved this way or you want to say that we relate to this on a spiritual level, and I'm sure those are two Seems ways of saying the same point. There's something about trees themselves, which beers looking into, mm -hmm. which I think will give us a better appreciation for why this is something that we have reinvented for ourselves and becomes part of our sense of avoda, our sense of service of God. We'll be back right after this break. <laughs> Hi, 
Just before the break, we were talking about how we have a special connection with trees. We feel something special in relation to them. And the Torah itself builds on this sense of connection and likens humans to trees in many ways. And uh, I'd like to start with a quote from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah. And this is brought in the Mishnah Avot, in Pirkei Avot, uh, Chapters of the Fathers. It's in the third chapter. And what the Mishnah is doing is it's discussing a person who has varying uh, relative quantities of wisdom and of good deeds. And it says that a person whose wisdom exceeds his good deeds... What's he similar to? To a tree whose leaves are many and whose roots are few. And the wind comes along and turns him over on his face. And now, as it's said in Yirmiyahu in Jeremiah, and he will be like a juniper tree in the wasteland, and he won't even see when good comes, but instead he'll inhabit parched places in the wilderness, a salty land that is uninhabitable. And on the flip side, on the flip side, you've got a aval, aval. But everyone whose deeds exceed their wisdom, who's more dedicated to doing good things than being a wise guy, what's he similar to? To a tree whose leaves are relatively few and whose roots are great. Even if all the winds in the world come and they blow at this tree, they won't move this tree from its place. As it says, We have a tree that's planted near water. And and spreads its roots out by the river. It will not see when the hot winds blow. Its leaves will remain fresh. It will not be troubled in years of drought, nor will it cease to bear fruit. That proof text verse, by the way, that this Mishnah brings from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah, is actually very, very similar to a verse in the first chapter of Psalms. Did I get that right? Because I remember in different episodes you yelled yes, at me about that. Yes, you said that correctly. Oh, and baby. We actually had something of a discussion about this going on the Facebook discussion group. Yes. Quick plug for the podcast Facebook page, Holy Madness The Show. Just search for us on Facebook. And the discussion group, which is attached to it. Which is Holy Madness The Discussion Group. 
So the first verse there is very similar and it will, that, that person will be like a tree that's planted on the water. Um, right. And the same thing and the, the roots will have water from the river, etc., etc. Very, very similar mm -hmm. uh, verse, very similar metaphor in terms of talking about a person. As a tree. Right. And that the winds won't blow them down and they'll be firmly planted and rooted, etc. There's, there's another aspect of the tree person metaphor that's very worth pointing out. We mentioned the technical aspect of it in the introduction, explaining what Tubishvat is. Mm -hmm. And that is the concept of those first three years that you cannot use the fruits. That is called, of all wild things, Orla. Orla, Orla is the word for foreskin. Right. And this has very important halachic ramifications, uh, ramifications in Jewish law. So if you look in all of the Chumash and the books of Moses, wherever we talk about Brit, about circumcision, there's no mention of where you would do it. There's a mention that you have to cut something off, but maybe it's your earlobe. Right. So just like the orla for the trees pertains to the fruit, so the orla that we're talking about for people pertains to fruit, pertains to your reproduction, just like fruit for trees is about reproduction. It's the plate of your place. It's the place of your fruitfulness. So it's your foreskin. Beyond that, as long as we're talking about orla for trees, to come back to what we were saying before, where there are two different New Year's, one pertaining to the age of the wood and one pertaining to the fruit, we have two totally different calendrical cycles for those two aspects of the tree. There's a division between the wood that enables the fruit and the fruit that comes out of it, between the means and the ends. And I have a sense that this is very much also present in, in the ideas of Brit Milah. In what way? That to remove the orla of a male is a way of saying we need to relate to the means. The means are important. It's not just what you get out of this, whether that's children or pleasure or whatever it is, that you need to expose yourself, you need to make yourself vulnerable, you need to peel back what is closing you up. That your means have to put you in contact with the world and put you in direct relationship. That's a very powerful way to put it, because in general when people are arguing whether the ends justify the means, it's because their vision is of the ends. Mm -hmm. The part that's in the world the part that we really care about. Right, is is the ends. And however you get there, that's you. That's your head. That's your problem. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, take a simple example. You're, you're, you're at work. Mm -hmm. And you have a question about what would be the best way to accomplish a certain task. Mm -hmm. And this has happened to all of us, I'm sure. And your boss goes, I don't really care how it's done. Just get it done. Mm -hmm. In other words, the getting it done... Mm -hmm 
is not important. It is not part of what the company cares about. What it cares about is the results. Mm-hmm. And this is something which, I mean, for crying out loud, people put on their resumes, results-oriented, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And what you're saying is that the way things are accomplished is as important, if not more so. I would turn this saying on its head and say that the means justify the ends. You take care of the means and let's see what comes out of that. Let's see what emerges from that. You know, it's amazing in the the business world, you know, there's this focus on the ends and we ask the question, do the ends justify the means? As if there were an ethical answer or moral answer to that question. But the moment that your focus is on the ends, that's already, already in a moral everything. position. Yeah. Once that's your focus, you know, you're already asking to have your means break down. Your whole framing of the situation is wrong. I, to, to put that in a very pithy way, you're asking <laughs> whether... Not the pith of a tree. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you're, but to, to put it in a, in a, in a pithy way, you're, the question is saying, is something unethical ethical? Right. We, we've talked about this briefly. It even goes back, if I have memory serves, to the first episode where I, I point out that I'm more or less apolitical. Mm-hmm. Because I find that most people are pushing agendas as opposed to meaningfully grappling with any kind of real issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't really care for that. And what we're describing is actually a big part of that. Right. Most politics consists of the ends, at least the desired ends, are predefined presupposed mm-hmm. and predecided. And then the question becomes, so what are the means that we're going to take to get there? You know, the most foundational political work, maybe, arguably at least, of the Western philosophical tradition and political tradition is Plato's Republic. And the Republic kicks off with the question, how do you get the most just state? So you have the end. The end is justice. And then you're going to construct all the means around that end. And you wind up with a state which, when people have actually tried it in various forms, is completely totalitarian. Plato is aware of this. And in truth, the greatness of Plato, but this is lost on most of the people who would actually try to implement the Republic, is that the whole scenario actually is horrific. And it is centered around one particular idea which in itself is limited and not quite human it's not going to work in the real world for that reason it's funny actually because when you were saying you know the most seminal political work in the list i was gonna say spinoza spinoza yes i'll tell you why yeah don't be ridiculous i'll tell you why first of all he's patient zero for every thinker that winds up becoming influential to the founders of the United States. So okay. you read Locke and you read Rousseau and you read all these uh, social contract uh, separation. Church. These are all Spinoza's ideas. 
Okay. But what's fascinating, Mm -hmm. now that you describe Plato in such a way, Mm -hmm. is Spinoza takes the opposite tack. How's that? Because what he describes is the idea of being chosen as a nation is any nation provided that they have a just way of governing their state. If you have justice, God will smile upon you. He never says what justice is other than to suggest that things like freedom and the ability for people to hold, you know, to, to chase truth, so to speak. And it's a de- obviously it's a deeply autographical, autobiographical mm-hmm. work. Right. You're talking about the, the Theopolitical Tractate. Yes. Right. It, Tzvi knows the Theopolitical Tractate, and I know the Ethics by Spinoza. So if you put us together, you've got like one, one. really good apostate. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, so so but that's the thing. He doesn't do this trick of ends and now let's find the means. He continuously discusses means and almost never discuss, discusses ends hmm. other than to say the proper means if followed will give you a worthwhile end. Mm-hmm. So we're, you might be able to say that for Plato, justice is an end. Justice pertains to the ends, whereas for Spinoza, justice pertains to the means. There you could really see the influence of Torah on his thinking. Yes, that's where I was going to go with this. Mm. Our tradition, we discussed this in our second episode. You might episode. be an apostate, but the apple doesn't <laughs> fall far from the tree. Wah, wah, wah. You're trying to embarrass me? Should I get a fig leaf? Aye. <laughs> <laughs> Our tradition is one of means. We discussed this actually. We, we've danced around this in many episodes. We said it almost outright in the last one mm-hmm. where we talked about, I, I mentioned that the, the Torah never mentions anything about a world to come. It never mentions anything about heaven or hell and any rewards or punishments that it lists are always in terms of this world. Mm-hmm. The entire thing is set up as means. We also this is what about, you do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even necessarily answer this is why you do it. Certainly not in ways that a, a modern thinker would ever think answers the question. Hey, why don't you eat pork? Right. Doesn't say. Oh, it's because of... Trichinosis, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever you say. Yeah, but but that would be that would be Moses' answer, so to speak. Sure, sure, whatever you say. It's not, it's unimportant to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go find a good reason, right? Yeah. And amazingly enough, the reasons that we find, we call ta'amim. We call them tastes. Tastes, and tastes have to do with eating. Mm-hmm. There are other places that trees show up in Torah. The obvious one is that the Torah itself is called a tree. Oh, very good. It is a tree of life to those that hold it. Other places that it shows up is a bit more uh, well-known, certainly, would be the very beginning. You have two trees, or perhaps one tree, in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. you have the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it probably wasn't tree of knowledge of the Chinese takeout menu. Maybe it was, well, and this that, whole thing's a mistake. That's my point. That's my point. <laughs> I mean, it's even, in terms of grammatical construction, it doesn't even make sense to say, and we do it today all the time, but dot is a noun leaning on something. It's specifically knowledge of. Of, right. Knowledge of good and evil. That's built into the grammatical form. So for those of you out there that would ever repeat this again, so make sure you always call it the tree of knowledge of. Good and evil. Or just of. <laughs> anyway, so that that's an obvious one. And I'd like to share briefly one, uh, one point, which is there's an argument in the Talmud, mm -hmm. the oral tradition, what this tree was. Mm -hmm. And it goes through quite a few options. Mm -hmm. One says... Wait, it, wait, you mean it wasn't necessarily an apple tree? It most certainly was not an apple tree. In fact, apple trees weren't even domesticated until thousands of years after we entered the land of Israel. So it definitely wasn't the apple tree. So what are the options in the Gemara? So... It gives three. Okay. Rabbi Meir mm -hmm. says that it was a grapevine, since nothing causes more heartbreak than wine. Mm. I don't know what he was drinking. That's not necessarily such a big joke. There's a another verse yeah. elsewhere that yeah. says, levav enosh, that the, the thing that makes you happy is wine. But there's okay. A, there's an amazing back and forth between different sources about wine. Yeah. It benefits, it's harm. Well, this is one of the negatives. Okay. Rabbi Nehemia says mm -hmm. it was a fig tree. And we know this because afterwards, God makes clothing mm -hmm. or aprons from big leaves. From these leaves. So the fig leaves. It says fig leaves. Mm -hmm. And he basically maintains that the very thing that they used mm. to sin is the thing mm -hmm. where God gives them this tikkun, mm -hmm. this uh, rectification. The means of sin become the means to continue on from there. Yes, which is quite a lesson of its own. There's also a sort of duality that way in Rebbe Meir. He's bringing out the sad part of wine. But, but it the, could have been happy. If it were the tree of life that you were eating from, then your relationship to this fruit would be totally different. Yeah. The last opinion is Rabbi Yehuda, mm -hmm. and he says it was wheat. Why? Which is especially uh, odd since it's not a tree. It's because a child and eating bread. So he says... Mm. We know that children do not learn to speak until they start to eat grain. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're going to have a tree of knowledge, mm -hmm. it's got to be grain. There's an amazing aspect of that, which is that knowledge is when you get involved with the world and you're engaged with it and you're taking things apart and you're putting things back together and... A child's excrement, halachically, isn't considered excrement until they're consuming enough grain. 
so that they're involved with the world in this way. Until that point, excrement doesn't count that way. Lastly, there's a medrash that says that the tree was an etrog tree. A citron. At the very least, parenthetically, those praying for a citron today on Tuvishvat, this might be one of the remazim, one of the hints, one of the aspects or deeper... Uh, uh, why would you be davening about Etrogim Dafka? Why, why would you make right, this fruit because so this central? Is, because this is where... This is ground zero for fruit. Right. So when we're in the garden, we actually discover ourselves through trees. Adam is commanded to take care of the trees, take care of the world, cultivate the trees. And, and so he's to become himself through his engagement with the trees. That's an amazing thing. And this, in a sense, defines all of human morality. It does? Yeah, this is the, the primal imperative for, for man. Take care of this world. It, there's a midrash that says that when Adam was first brought into the garden, God showed him around and said, look at everything here. Look how nice it is. Look how beautifully integrated everything is. Now, be careful, because if you mess up one aspect of this, everything falls apart. So the maintenance of our place and the development of that place, the, um, as we would say in Lashon HaKodesh, the, the Avodah, that is what defines man's purpose in the world. There's one opinion that's brought elsewhere. It's not in that Gemara. It's in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, where it says that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the Eitz Hadat, Tovra, is Adam himself. Hmm. And they get that from a verse, a pasuk, which says, Ki Adam because man is the tree of the field. Actually, in the verse, it's asked as a question. Right, but they're using it as this kind of punny declaration. Yeah. It continues to compare, if you will, Chava, Eve, to the garden itself, so that a tree in the garden takes on an entirely different shade of meaning. So the reason I highlight this is we've been dancing around man as tree mm -hmm. or man and tree mm -hmm. for a very long time. And here they kind of meet. Fuse. Yeah. That... Adam the end. <laughs> Not exactly. No. But man as tree. Well, the ants also had problems with their wives. <laughs> Every metaphor is mostly accurate, I suppose. And so taking this, and granted it's one opinion, and granted it's, you know, it's coming to tell us something, which we're not going to get into here. 
But it's in that lens that this opinion provides where these metaphors... We started off this segment with pointing out that there must be something deeper to why trees are so meaningful that we would take this minor holiday and and would reinvent it in a way that would speak to us mm. without all these other things that we need to observe it and over here we're kind of coming to that point which is we the reason trees resonate with us so much is we are in a certain sense trees what that sense is that we'll get back to after this So we talked about these likenesses, metaphors, that compare people to trees. And we even talked about a fusion between person and tree in the person of Adam, Adam. But there's more to it. Why make this comparison? Is it just that it speaks to us on an experiential, phenomenological level? I think there's more to it. So we started this episode of the podcast talking about multiple New Year's. And there's a question raised in the Talmud again about which New Year initiated creation, initiated our world. Which New Year start was the first day of our world? And that debate actually centers on two verses about trees. One opinion is that the world was created in Tishrei, or running up to Tishrei, and, which would be Rosh Hashanah as we know it today. And one opinion is that the world was created in the run-up to Rosh Chodesh Nisan in the spring. And the two verses which support these positions in the case of Tishrei, it's Etzpri Osepri, the verse where God commands the earth to bring forth trees. He says, bring forth fruit, bring forth fruit trees which make fruit. Ah, so when do you have trees of fruit? which make fruit, well, that would be in September. You have trees that are full of fruit, right? And then the other verse 
is the verse which follows that, where the trees actually come into being, and that's pre, a tree which makes fruit. So when do you have trees that are starting to make fruit? Well, that would be in the spring. That would be in Nissan. Now, obviously, we're not arguing when the world was created on a calendar. Mm -hmm. On account of creation probably predates any kind of calendar. It's very yeah, hard. Right? Yeah, it's very hard to measure time without something to measure time in or with. We're talking about something conceptual, not something historical. Right. So a nice way to understand the argument might be the difference between a creation in potential and a creation of actuality. Now, both, although amazingly differently, both our Jewish and our Christian listeners mm -hmm. can appreciate the distinction. Between potential and actual? Right. Sure. Because, for example, the Christian mm -hmm. listeners will point to the rebellion of the devil against God before man is created. Whoa, I didn't see as, that coming. As being part of creation, okay. the world existed. There was something that existed before then. Okay. But it was before any meaningful measurement of time in terms of the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas, for us, we're about to describe, I guess, what we mean, which is there's a difference between... Uh, look, the, this is already found in the beginning of the Torah, mm -hmm. where God wanted to create a world in din, in judgment, and strictness, but doesn't. Mm -hmm. So oh, there's a whole uh, there's a whole debate in uh, Protestant theology. I'm not sure I'll get the terminology correct here, but after the first shame verse on of you. the Torah, <laughs> there's I think it's called gap theory, that there could be because the idea is that it should be taken literally, but there could be. Millions of years between, billions of years between I did not know verses. that that was the source of such a thing. I first came across it asking questions as a teenager mm -hmm. about the obvious discrepancies between, I don't know, geology and theology. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the answers that was given to me. Right. The obvious, I mean, and, and they pointed out it has to mean literally. I mean, if you're measuring days, mm -hmm. but the sun and the moon aren't in their proper place until day four. What does it mean to have a day without, without the a sun, sun and the moon? moon. So are you oh, going to really think that these are 24-hour periods, right. etc.? A lot of the more ultra-Orthodox people don't like such a thing, but, you know, literal-minded people are literally-minded. I was just thinking about that this evening, about how... Well, my sense is that pretty much everything that takes place in Eden should not be, absolutely should not be mapped onto history in any way. That is completely ahistorical, completely out of the flow of time as we know it. Well, yes. You and I both appreciate this is not our... This is not a revolutionary thing from a rabbinic perspective at no, all. I was going to say, this yeah. is not our... Uh, this is right. not our yeah. uh, thing, uh, uh, new take in Torah, but Gan Eden means a garden of time. Yeah. So something which is itself where time is located, you're not going to be subject to time. If you can wander through time like a garden and peer in on different times, your whole relationship to time is nonlinear. There is no time as we as we see it today. It. But the, the chidush, the, the idea that hit me, 
was that to interpret these verses in what today we call a literal manner is actually to be profoundly secular. What do you mean? It's to essentially to say that the level on which reality exists is material. So therefore, I need to pull down this analysis of existence to the material level and get that I'm in. Ah, I yeah. hear that. That's nice. At any rate, and we should probably treat this to a proper uh, analysis and destruction <laughs> in a future podcast. But um, so you have two creations of potential and actual, and so and you the, would say that potential is um, is Tishrei, right? As or exactly where I was about to okay. go. So the mm -hmm. creation of the potential of a world would be the one that's posited in Tishrei, as you put it. It's pre separate Which, as we know, doesn't happen. Uh, That's why it's potential. Right. It sounds like it should be actual. But it's not. Right. Minus one tree, which conveniently, as we have brought up a moment ago, is the etrog. Right. Where the wood actually tastes of the fruit. That was supposed to be the case for everything. I tried that. I got to do it. Really? Yes. In the botanical gardens here in Yerushalayim, everybody should go and visit the botanical gardens in Yerushalayim. You can bite an etrog tree. I don't know how many people tried it before me. I suspect not too many. I hope not, because if you're biting into <laughs> someone else's bite. <laughs> at, any, at any rate, so that's the, the creation and potential. And therefore, and the creation in actuality is the one that takes place in Nissan, which is, as we have it, trees which have fruit on them, so to speak. And therefore, we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, our new year, in Tishrei. And so, rather uh, miduyak, rather specifically, in our prayers, we say today is the conception of the world. Hayom harat olam. Hayom harat olam. Not, however you sing it. I only learned that when I came here. Oh, really? Yeah. What much different. Oh, it's hard to tease them all apart at this point. I mean it. I don't, because I, I, right, I, right. I mentioned this yeah, in, yeah. in the mm -hmm. prayer episode every yeah. year or something else, and mm -hmm. it's hard to pull them apart. Um, but in the synagogue where I grew up, we had uh, this amazing guy who came in, a real mensch, Irish, Catholic, deeply religious, wonderful singer, but Irish tenor who would do all the the chazanut for, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing his nigunim were very different. <laughs> he, he read it out of a score. Well, then... Good luck with that. Yeah. At any rate, so the the actuality is in Nissan. So we say, as I was saying, we say today is the conception of the world as opposed to the birthday of the world because it's not. It's not when the world was created. It's when the world was conceived of. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like to launch into a bit of a Hasidic or Kabbalistic uh, uh, drasha ex, uh, exposition here. We should have, like, some warning sign on this. Because... <laughs> if you're literal-minded, you will hate the next couple of minutes. No, I just meant, you know, Kabbalah. It's like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're told that 40 days before a person's birth, his uh, his soulmate or her soulmate is announced in heaven. Da -da -da -da. Right. Now, for the unfortunately still single uh, of our listeners, 
this is not necessarily literal. People will have soulmates that aren't necessarily people. People talk all the time how he's married to his work. Oh, wow. Or he's married to whatever. So so the concept of a soulmate is not as literal, perhaps, as, as some people take it. But at any rate, this is, this is hmm. what we're told. 40 days before birth, a person's soulmate is announced in heaven. Now, what's weird is for these two New Year's mm-hmm. of potential and actual, the first of Nisan and the first of Tishrei, Precious we Sunday. have minor holidays exactly 40 days before. Mm. 40 days before the Rosh Hashanah that we have, which, as we have said, is the creation in potential, there is the minor holiday of Tuba Av, the 15th of Av. Which is another holiday known only by its date. Yes, that's first of all. Second of all is another one of these minor holidays that has survived and been readapted in modern times. Uh, Tuba'av is described as a day where people would essentially go out into the fields and create marriages. That and Yom Kippur. Right. That's a shocker for people today. The yeah, is the day of that while you're in synagogue saying, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, what, what actually would be taking place in the time of the temple is that the girls would be off wearing white and dancing in the, in the fields, in the vineyards. and they'd be saying, uh, uh, boy, young man, raise your eyes and see, what is it that you want? And then it says, so the ones who were rich would say, hey, marrying money's good. And the ones who came from families of good stock would say, I mean, give me, you know, come on. You want your children. To, family. Yeah. Good meetos. And it, it goes through the list. And those who had nothing would say, you know, at least marry us for the sake of heaven. Um, there's a whole other thing to that. And it's not the, the time and place for it. But as long as you give us jewelry, whatever that's referencing. Right. But this also took place on Tuba'av. And so today this has survived in, in modern uh, culture, at least in Israel. It's as terrible events for singles. Well, that, but it's become the Israeli Valentine's Day. Ah, yes. So that's 40 days before the creation and potential. Now, 40 days before the creation and actuality of all crazy things is, and we're recording it today, so Tubishvat. Which seems to have Happy no- New Year! <laughs> exactly. It seems to have nothing to do with Tubishat. However, and this is the point, if you understand that 40 days before you're announcing the soulmate, so 40 days before the creation and potential, what there is, is an acknowledgement of a need for a soulmate. Hmm. And so... The way we mark the day is by creating unions. Mm -hmm. Because the whole day is thinking, so to speak, your pre-creation. This is God saying there is a need for love, for union, for Mm -hmm. oneness. Now, 40 days before creation actuality, God has to pick his soulmate. Hmm. And he picks man. He picks Adam. We live in a man-centered universe. And so, man as tree is very literal in that sense. 
that ki adam is not a flippant wordplay. It's an actuality. You are the centerpiece of the garden, as, as we alluded to a moment ago. You are the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. You are that timeless being, so to speak, that stands above all and creates fruits that are meant to be enjoyed and just to bear fruit. Creation has a purpose. That purpose is man and his accomplishments. And you're saying that Tubishvat is the day that man is paired with tree. It's it's more than that. I'm saying that Tubishvat is the day where God chooses man as his soulmate, as his uh, zivuk. And as the way his... to do that is to make us part of trees. Make us well, no, but the the metaphor mm. is tree. Mm -hmm. The fruits of creation are ah. man, mm -hmm. and the fruits of man are the pinnacle and the purpose of creation. What better metaphor is there than trees? So when you're setting the date to mm -hmm. say this is when fruits enter a new time period, mm -hmm. that's the day. Mm. But what's underlying that as the, th the day that's 40 days before creation actuality is the birthday of man being chosen as the pinnacle of creation itself. And therefore the intended, the beloved of God. Amen. Amen indeed. And on that note, happy shared birthday to all of us. All you fruit out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And before we go, just a quick extra, another plug for the Facebook page, for our holymadness.podbean.com website. on Facebook, go into Facebook and search holy madness dash the show and you'll get to our basic page and if you do holy madness dash the discussion group you'll get into our discussion group but the main way to hear the podcast is as i mentioned the website holymadness.podbean.com looking forward to hearing from you all and of course you can also get us via itunes or any other apps. yeah any other podcast app to search for us we should be there and if not, let us know. And please spread love. This new year, give the gift of holy madness. <laughs> not any kind of madness, just the holy kind. Holy madness. And on that note, we'll see you all next week. Go forth and be fruitful. Amen. We are stars. We are stars.